you, I think are cool because you're a start and an end. I'm realizing I might never interview a middle person because it's so raw when you're in it. It seems like sometimes you're in the middle without knowing you're in the middle. (laughs) I love that because when you wrote up your notes to remind each other what you'd been through, that was the only thing that I reacted to that I was like, really? You didn't know you were in the middle of it when you were in the middle of it? I knew you were in the middle of it. Can I call it? Do mm-hmm. I call it? Mm-hmm. Hey. Hi, Grandma. So, do you want to play, Grandma? You want to play that part from Measure 9? Yep. Hello, fellow shit sisters and siblings. Reverend Rachel here. Today, I'm going to introduce you to one of my oldest friends since I entered adulthood who has been through the start, middle, and end of shit with one parent, and is now back at the start with the others. We had so much to say about our people and our pets that I made two podcasts out of our conversation. Get your pen and paper ready for an irreverent rundown on all things elder end of life. Before I introduce you to my fellow shit sister, let me just recap why this monthly podcast exists. After accumulating 10 years and counting of elder care intel, I decided to create my irreverent empire of insights, anecdotes, and audio, all found on my website, thisisgettingold.com, just add some dashes, in order to support the undertakings of you, my fellow shit sisters and siblings. The purpose of my monthly podcast is to provide empathy and education about the start, middle, and end of the elder care trenches. And to remind each other why we're all gathered here together, I start each episode with a grandma cameo. Those of you who saw my last two irreverent anecdotes already know that grandma had quite the adventure at the end of April, and then again at the end of May. In other words, I'm exhausted. As for grandma, she is not only as chipper and unfazed as ever, she also conveniently doesn't remember, or chose to forget, that she almost kicked the bucket. Again. So let's check in on Grandma at the end of her second visit to our house since she returned from the intensive care unit. Before we started the recording, I checked my cell phone and I noticed I had a text from one of my dear friends and loyal listeners, and she said, Rachel, you have not put out your newsletter and your podcast in the normal time, and I fear that means. It means what? It means that mother has bit the dust. (laughs) (laughs) Grandma is dead. (laughs) Last time we did a podcast recording, we were also in the car on a warm summer's night, and the birds were going crazy. Tonight it's pretty still because it's so damn hot. And you have a curfew. Now that you come and go from your rest home, we have to get you home at 10 o'clock. And last time you were all put out because you couldn't watch a movie. That's right. (laughs) So today we whisked you out of your home, set you up with your gin and seltzer and your glass of water and your snacks, and set you up in front of what movie? Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Mm -hmm. And have you read the book yet, Mother? I haven't finished it. In our house, the rule is 
<laughs> you have to read the book first, right. and then you get to watch the movie. And how come we let you watch the movie before you finish the book? Because I might die before. <laughs> Precisely. Is that it? Uh -huh. I don't think we have enough time to wait for Grandma to right read for all the Grandma books. To read that book. And what did you get for dinner? For dinner, I got wonderful spaghetti. It was bolognese made oh, by your son-in-law. Yeah. And what did you get for dessert? It was fruit, sugar, cream. A homemade tart made by your son-in-law and your grandson. And just gorgeous. Mm. You are getting ready for your son to go to camp. And as we were just leaving the house, and you're not going to see your grandson for three and a half weeks. What did I say to your grandson as I was rolling you in your wheelchair to the car? You said, you better give me a hug goodbye because I might have bitten the dust. Yeah, you might be dead. You never know. I never know. You never know. We're working on borrowed well, time. Back. I will answer the question of why there was a delay. On my latest newsletter, my latest podcast is because I'm exhausted because what did you do after you spent a week in the hospital with a collapsed lung and broken ribs? Then I went into some other something. Leaky heart. And then they called you. You ended up in the intensive care unit, mother. That's right. For two days. And what almost happened when you were in the intensive care unit? I almost bit the dust. You almost bit the dust. Or from did, the heart? From the heart. Oh. So we have three things that might kill you now. The <laughs> cancer, your severe emphysema and COPD, and now some heart issues. Leaky heart. Yeah. But the day I brought you home, and for days after, what was your behavior? about your near-death episode. I couldn't believe it. Super frustrated. The doctors never told you that you almost died. No, they didn't tell me. We didn't talk openly out loud in front right. of you for three days about the fact that I had to make two life-or-death decisions for you in the middle of the night. No! Everybody was keeping it a big secret from you. And then I had to alert all the relatives and they all called in to say goodbye because i was told it was not looking good grandma was gonna go anytime <laughs> and then the next day after they removed the intubation tube from your mouth i said mom do you remember all those people calling and some of them crying to say goodbye to you and you said what Said that was pretty dramatic. I remember I was crabby about this thing they put on my head. <laughs> <laughs> Grandma was crabby about the life saving devices that the ICU doctors used. Ooh. Oh, fireworks. So, Mother, you cheated death again. You are acting and looking like it never even happened. Now you might die of a heart attack from the fireworks. Oh my god. So what's your over-under on how long you're going to last, Mom? What, what do you think? Days? Weeks? Months? <laughs> what's it going to take? What's it's hard to tell anymore. I'm tell. telling you. I know. I'm probably could be any time. But any time. Well, speaking of which, now we have to work on your obituary. Pain we haven't worked butt. on it yet. I know. It's going to be a pain <laughs> in my butt if I have to dig up all those details. Yeah. Well, this is the part where 
we have to have you say goodbye to the listening audience again, Mom, because it's very likely you might not make it to the next podcast. (laughs) (laughs) And now it's time to hear from my fellow shit sister, Jenny. There are two things you should be aware of before you listen. The first is that Jen and I have spent over 25 years pragmatically processing the details and status of our families of origin, financial, emotional, and otherwise. The second related thing you should be aware of is that, as a result, we are unflinching in our description and assessment of her estranged mother's death. The following conversation has been rated I by me. Some material may be considered too irreverent and real. You are seeing me in my hot mess of jammies and my face is not on and I'm, I'm sweaty. <laughs> Isn't it a relief not to have to get dressed for Zoom? <laughs> it is actually. Okay, so today I am talking to my dear friend, Jenny. The second I fled my first job out of college and returned to Vermont where I went to school, you were the first and I dare say pretty much the last person I met. Like you were my one friend <laughs> in my Vermont years. And that was 25 years ago. If I did oh my God. Right. right? And our lives crossed each other in such weird ways. You were in Vermont and I was in Vermont and then I was in Boston and then you were in Cambridge. And then I realized I have a mutual dad of a child friend who knew you back in Vermont. And I probably met him in Vermont at a party. So our lives have kind of worked that way over the decades. So as a result, you were a very intuitive person for me to have as part of this conversation, because I dare say there's no subject that we have not covered in our lives. There is no depth or breadth at which we have not been willing to go with each other. And what I also appreciate is you don't let me get away with anything, basically. (laughs) If I overly generalize, you're like, no. And if I overly simplify, you expand and you just help help me have perspective on any given thing that I'm experiencing or talking about. So I figured you will be a very good fodder for our audience as we dig into this complicated topic. What I want my listeners to know is as we were preparing for this conversation, Jen did this unbelievable job of replaying back for both of us what she experienced. The first anecdote we want to talk about, which is basically both the middle and the end of shit. So everyone will hear me refer back to this email and these notes as we're talking, but it was just such a fantastic perspective on something I watched you go through. And I did call her mom, but I explained this in the notes that we were estranged and I had never thought about it in those terms until I read this article in the New York Times a number of years ago that debunked the estrangement myths. And one of them is that the only thing that's estrangement is never speaking again, or that happens over a moment. And they do a good job of explaining exactly what was my experience, which was that we became estranged over time, probably starting at birth, you know, who knows? That like, <laughs> starting at birth. <laughs> yeah, that it wasn't just a connection that was lost. It was a connection that was never built. Wow. Um, and that's powerful. Like you said, I knew her, I knew her in your life, but to articulate it that way is, it says a lot. Yeah. And so we were connected and we never had zero contact, but that contact was more and more limited over time, both frequency, but also just content. It didn't feel like a safe place to take personal information. And so our Mm. conversations were often 
not very personal. <laughs> to your point, I just have vivid, vivid memories of walking down Vermont streets with you and we'd have our coffee and our donut that I could barely afford. <laughs> and then you would peel off to the movie theater because you had this ritual with your mom around holidays. And it was always the same. And in part, it was to manage the politics of your relationship and the larger family dynamics. So could you describe a little bit when you talk about your parents, it's not what most people think. And then separately, you have your mom. Could you describe yeah. that? So context is everything. So if I'm talking about my young childhood, my parents is my mother and my father, but they split when I was, I think, three. And then when I was about five, my father repartnered with the man who's now his husband and when I say my parents, often I mean them. And that, you know. that helps as we, because I know we'll flow into that in this conversation. So just so people can follow the thread. Yes. Um, and they, for all the time that I knew you and them, they all had an amicable relationship. You had three parents and you had different rituals and dynamics, but they were a extended unit that I heard you regularly interact with. So for the purposes of this conversation, when you talk about elder end of life, in the way I had seven of them, <laughs> you've got an extra. Yeah. So in that context, can you describe a little bit about your mom's health and lifestyle just so they can fully understand the context in which you were managing her end experience? Yeah, she was not a very healthy person. Definitely not a lot of self-care over the years and not a lot of maintenance care and had become quite obese. I think maybe there was some thyroid involvement, or I don't exactly know, because she didn't include me in healthcare conversations. And so over the years, I had certainly known this and observed it and spent time worrying about how am I going to engage in end of life with somebody? How can I support her and sort of do my duty without being close to her? Because I had watched her, her, you know, health decline. Certainly it took a big toll on her joints. She had a lot of orthopedic troubles. I would see when we went to the movies, which was mostly what we did together, just walking across the street into the theater became mm -hmm. more and more difficult. She would be winded. And I think this happens a lot. It's important to remember that people are so good at covering. They don't even realize they're covering that instead right. of saying that it was difficult for her to walk from some distance, she would complain about the movie theater and not want to go to a particular <laughs> one. And when I really dug into it, it was that it wasn't accessible, but she wow. was unwilling to see herself as somebody who needed that right. accommodation. That's interesting because um, having known her, known her physically and her, you know how she experienced her body, that is totally intuitive to me. And yet I had never heard that detail that at some point it started to be about the negotiation of what she could handle without her naming what it was about. Oh yeah. And I mean, even as a strange people, I would occasionally be like, oh, you know, there's, there's grocery delivery. Have you ever thought about that? Or maybe getting a placard just because it'd be easier. And I think she may have gotten a parking placard at the end, but I think it was difficult. And now as an aging person, I can understand <laughs> it. You know? Like, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. <laughs> fine. Right. I was just having that thought as I bent down in what used to be a normal way when yeah. I was ready for this conversation. I was like, wow. I'm starting to not be able to do that anymore. <laughs> I know. It reminds me of the idea that if the, the frog is in the pot, when you start the water, it doesn't notice, you know, <laughs> I'm not saying it well. Frog, like if you, yeah. if you drop a frog into a boiling pot of water, it's obviously going to notice. But if you heat <laughs> the water up slowly, it's like, oh yeah, cool. Okay. <laughs> it's like a sauna. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm going to take a slight pause now. I try to tire out the dogs before we do these <laughs> interviews. And then at some point the puppy's like, there's a toy over there that I can't reach. Can you get it for me? 
that's what I love about these conversations. I know the end of the story. Right. I know what you went through, but to hear you play it back helps me remember what I went through in these moments or I watched you go through. So for instance, we were laughing about, you didn't even know you were in the middle of the moment. Yeah. And yet if I had not seen your replay of the experience, I would have told the story as, and then Jen and I would go out for drinks and she would tell me exactly what you just said. Love that you use the word duty, that she felt a sense of duty, a sense of responsibility, a sense of obligation to this person. The interwebs are full of articles like this. Do I owe it to my parents to support them financially or otherwise, whether you're close to them or not? So I remember you and I having these deep conversations about what did you have to try to do for her? What did you have to try to encourage her to let you do or participate in? And mostly for your sake, how did you learn all these things that it's so easy for the rest of us to walk around saying, you need to have the conversation, go have the conversation. But you guys didn't have those conversations. So I watched your stress be, I do feel responsible. I'm a loving child and human being and want to look out for this person. But how do I even do this when all we do is go to the movies? <laughs> did it feel that way to you? Or did you really have to, in retrospect, say, oh, this was sort of a dark cloud over my head that I was managing for a while? Some of it was just a letting go of what that responsibility was. I came to feel like, okay, I, I see the boundary of my responsibility is I want to make sure that she's not suffering and gets mm -hmm. the care that she needs, but she's not moving in. I'm not moving in there. I'm not going to go there. We're not going to talk more. What can I do to encourage her to get that support? And because of the way that we communicated or didn't communicate, it wasn't the straight up sit down. We're having a talk, but sort of be strategizing like what indirect way do I have to, because she was right. very sensitive. If you talk to her about health and she didn't take it well, I remember as a kid, she didn't get dental care for some giant amount of time. And essentially part of it was that her mother had said something to her about her teeth. And then they got in a fight and didn't talk for 10 years while she didn't go to the dentist for 10 years. Wow. You know, she just was not receptive wow. <laughs> knowing my grandmother, like it may not have come in the most gentle way, but that was always sort of a concern. And so while I think a lot of therapists or self-helpy people would be like, you just have to be honest. It's not always the way to get things. Yeah, done, you know? honestly. It's going to go around sometimes, you know, a few years before her death, she died in 2019. And within the say two years before that, maybe three, her orthopedic pain had gotten super intense. And I did not know until kind of the end of it, just how much pain she'd been on painkillers for a long time. She'd gotten steroid injections, it, particularly her hip was the first thing bothering her. And so she had a hip replacement. And it was funny to see this person who had been so unconnected to her body her whole life and really not right. attending to it, be obsessed with, it, you know, like, yeah. like everything was about it. And because the hospital has this very uh, codified process, I, I think she made me her medical power of attorney which mm -hmm. is a whole other thing to like have that responsibility for a person you don't exactly know. Right. That well. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but they had this process and they had the paperwork and that really helped having an outside person, even though I was not in touch with her social worker, I was able to direct her to that person. So that's advice to, to other people is you don't have to do it alone. There, there right. are people out there and, and particularly somebody else might have 
better results than you. That's a fantastic point because I I want to name, I now have a 25 pound French bulldog. In I my saw lap. the ears. <laughs> so cute. She is done with the puppy. So she's like, I'm coming into the closet to sit with you. And now he's going crazy out there. I think he lost all his toys under the couch. (laughs) We were just saying that is something I try to articulate regularly about don't reinvent the wheel. You don't have to go it alone. And I think that's actually a super cool point relative to a parent that either you don't have the most effective communication with or the deepest relationship with to negotiate this stuff. And to your point, so many of my dad's caregivers, my dad, who is such a strong, crazy, intense personality, he was a pussycat when it came to his personal care people, his nurses, he loved to flirt. So it allowed me in each scenario to relax into whatever role was not being filled or rather that I could fill well. And then I could plug the gaps with the experts in any given area. Is that what your experience was like? I think so. And I've experienced this with other people from her generation that really respond to that sort of concept of an expert. I'm glad you used that word. Mm-hmm. And like for some people, that's an important difference where a me point. as her daughter saying, hey, you shouldn't block the exit when you're not <laughs> mobile doesn't hold the same weight that like an expert would say, oh right. yeah, this is dangerous and you need to do this, that, that there's a certain kind of reverence for expertise. That's really awesome. And I think there's so many different flavors of expertise. There's elder care lawyers, there are elder care consultants, there are medical specialists. I, I found that it was a mix of finding the right person whose job it was to be knowledgeable in a deep and broad way in that area, but then also remembering that you are the expert of your family and your elder is the expert of themselves. So I got very practiced in taking the parts that I needed from people and kind of ignoring the rest or customizing it to our situation. Did you come up against anything like that? I guess so. Just like our relationship deteriorated over time, she deteriorated over time. And and in Mm. the same way, I think this is just your daily life and you don't notice. And so I had always this concept of like, oh, I I need to make plans for when it happens. And of course, the thing that I imagined was going to happen was that she was going to be debilitated or mentally unfit and that I would need to step in and figure out her care. And it was happening slowly, but then what ended up happening was a very abrupt death that I thought was abrupt, but in fact, she'd been in decline the whole time, but she just never got to a point where she wasn't, she was always lucid. Mm-hmm. mostly <laughs> I may be biased um, and able to make her own decisions and she did really a lot particularly when she got to the very end stage of having all these joint replacements she did a lot of advocacy and a lot of research and figured right. out a lot of things for herself so the thing that I was preparing myself for never happened exactly right, right? so that's a perfect segue because here's the part where I feel folks will think my irreverence is at 11. But if we work backwards from your mother's end, that moment in the moment, and then when you and I were just revisiting that email, my only reaction to it was, oh, thank God, (laughs) because every possible scenario that you just described drawn out over time, both for your mother, how she would have experienced it, but for sure for you financially, emotionally, being at a distance, I was just so 
mm, worried for you and for her about how badly that could have unfolded. So when the opposite occurred, from my point of view, that was a blessing and I'm not even a religious person. So tell us in what actually did end up happening and how you ended up experiencing that. So she died suddenly from a cardiac issue and her body was not discovered until four or five days after she died. And that, you know, can we pause there? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's the part where people are like, what? You call that a good thing? I saw her in December and I think it's possible that we didn't speak. Maybe we'd exchange an email or something. They were usually cat cartoons <laughs> where she would send me something that I wouldn't respond to. So it's possible that we hadn't spoken since December. And I remember right around probably the day she died being like, oh, it's been a while. I should probably call her or something. And wow. then but I was on vacation um, in California and I was flying back in the middle seat of a crowded flight and you can now get Wi-Fi on planes. And so I checked my email and there was this weird email purportedly from the police saying, please call us about a family emergency, but it didn't seem very official. And it's like, maybe this is a scam. And because I had Wi-Fi, I was able to email or text my father, who is not married to my mother, but is her neighbor and her friend. And like, can you call the police? Not the number in this email, but just call the police to see if this is <laughs> Wow, this is a lot about our generation. Don't click this link. Don't click the link, yeah. Uh, because it had said, you know, your mother had your email, but not your phone number. And I was like, that's weird. I don't understand this. But of course, they found her address book. And, yeah, you know, oh, I see, I see. Whereas it was probably in her phone that was password protected. Yeah. Give me a second again, because I want to be so pissed off at the dog whining, t- messing up this audio. So I got to figure out what the hell he wants. Hold on. No problem. God, these babies are demanding. So again, just to, to recap, you hadn't talked to your mother for two months, I guess. Uh, you had that typical biological child moment of like, huh, I guess I should call her. And then before you had a chance to do that, you were sitting on a plane with Wi-Fi, sandwiched between a couple people when an email came in and said, basically, your mother's been dead in her house for about five days. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, what? I mean, I didn't find out in the email, but yeah, exactly. Um, and actually, felt well, let's get this specific because I'm not trying to be macabre, but I, I think it's worth knowing in that scenario yeah. what so happened. The email, so your- the email was sort of cryptic. It said there's call us about a family emergency. Your mother had your email, but not your phone number. And I wasn't sure it was real. So my father called the police station and they came and talked to him, which is also like, I wasn't sure how that was going to go down. They're not married anymore, but he was like, she's on a plane. So they came in, they notified him. And apparently she had been having some pain, maybe like back pain, which as people may or may not know, visceral pain, things that happen in your organs, often people experience it as muscular pain. So if you have an intense sudden backache, it might not be your back. So she had had this pain and had been telling people and she had run into a friend at the grocery store who said, oh, you should get this checked out and and I'll call you in a couple of days. And the friend called her and she didn't respond. And that was atypical. And so the friend became worried enough to call the police. Wow. And then the police entered her home and found her. We think it might've happened that day. Mm-hmm. that she saw her friend because the groceries were there unput away. Wow. Um, and she had fallen. And then when I went into her email, the correspondence in her email had stopped several days before they found her. 
And initially it was like a crime scene because there was a little bit of blood because when she fell, she hit her head, but it was soon determined that the blood was post-mortem. It wasn't right. very much blood. It was from the fall. So a dramatic death for me, but to your point, like she was intensely independent. She was pretty connected to her home. It would have been really difficult for her to have to leave home. And so while it feels really dramatic to us, I think it was probably a good death for her to not have have that outside help. Exactly. That's precisely how I thought of your mom's situation. When I say, sounds good to me, (laughs) she never had to negotiate giving up her independence or leaving the house or presumably in much pain. And I'll just make a total random sidebar that I've had reason to have to manage the understanding of what happens if somebody is found dead. And I don't mean like after five days, but just in their bed, like what happens and for what it's worth, there always has to be a coroner's report to ensure that there wasn't any funny business from a stranger or right. inside the house. But that's a very normative process to just confirm it was a natural cause. And once that happens, they say, okay, you can now proceed with your family moment around it. So thank you for sharing those details because they are very yes. intense compared to what most people imagine end of life can be. And maybe we'll do a quick sidebar. As folks will see on my website, I discovered a woman named Caitlin Doty, who is a mortician out of California, and she's got a very modern and green perspective. But she's also very irreverent, not afraid to dig into any of this content. And I will admit, while I haven't dug into her books, I am intrigued by all of them, especially the one that is titled, Will the Cat Eat My Eyeballs? When I'm Uh dead in my home. (laughs) Yes. not. Because my mother's cat was there with her. (laughs) Exactly what I was hoping you would tell us. (laughs) I mean, maybe some cats, but this cat, no. (laughs) Good to know. Thank you, Jen, for answering that question for me. So now, in retrospect, my experience, your experience, as you were going through it, kind of didn't realize you were in the middle of it until now you're at the end of it but the end as you and I both know is only the beginning of a whole lot of other shit so tell folks what they can expect what you experienced from the moment that your mom was found from the point that you were sandwiched in the middle of the plane what happened I definitely had an intense physical response and especially this this sense of like oh I gotta keep it together <laughs> you know, for, right. for another three hours on this plane. Oh my plane. God. And then just a lot of dislocation. I didn't really know what to do. What are you supposed to do? Who am I supposed to tell? I guess I go to Vermont. I just didn't mm-hmm. know what to do. And because we didn't talk about it, I didn't have any plan or any notion of what it was that I needed to, to do. And I am a doer, right? Like, <laughs> yes, you I are. Like you are a professional <laughs> event planner. So if you had an event... So, you know, I mean, and there was some comfort in that, like, okay, I guess I go there. I guess we talk to the police. I guess I have to figure out what to do with her body. It's intensely busy. I took off work. I I went up to where my parents were and, and partially because I didn't want them to have to be the only one doing all the things. And I, I really, even at the time I went up there, didn't understand what all the things were like coordinating what was going to happen to her body. Mm -hmm. And And you would would not have had any guidance about her wishes around that. And actually what can you do with a body that's been in a house for five days? 
Um, I never saw it. I think you mm-hmm. could probably do whatever you wanted. What we chose to do was cremation. She had filled out some limited paperwork when she had her joints replaced about what she wanted, though most of that also dealt with she's unable to make or communicate medical decisions. There was a little bit about if I, hi puppy. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, you're big. <laughs> I know. Um, There was a little bit about what to happen after, but it was not very specific. So we decided on a funeral parlor. We decided on cremation. And honestly, these people were wonderful. And I was worried going in that it was going to be syrupy, but they were real and genuine. I went in and explained the situation. They were great at not assuming a relationship we didn't have. And and also just being like, we've got this. Like we do this all the time. We'll get the body. Here's what's going to happen. The funeral home. Okay. So they took care of getting the body from the coroner and Mm -hmm. you write it, but they took care of placing the obituaries. They just took care of this, of the shit. And Um, and let's pause there for a second. Cause again, (laughs) most people don't have reason to know what those people do until Ah. you're in it but think of them as the project managers of death (laughs) (laughs) basically they are the social glue and the liaison between all the parts and by parts I mean the body parts too (laughs) yeah and I didn't know that I just sort of thought oh they you hold a funeral and and they charge you a lot for it <laughs> yeah, those are the moments where you're like, oh, the money's worth it. Okay, I see what you're doing here. <laughs> yeah, but they, they get the death certificate. They were really helpful in that regard and just helpful to your point of like project managing a thing that I knew nothing about. And I'll name this too, because it might segue into the things that you had to do next. Somebody I know recently had a, a death that they're involved in and the same thing that they're like, I won't be that involved in it. And now, of course, they are. And it's such minutia, but the first thing that I said to them is get 10 death certificates and don't give away the originals. (laughs) So little things like that, that people have to teach you, but you have to provide the death certificate in so many different scenarios to claim beneficiary money, to close bank accounts, et cetera. Um, Somebody early on had said to me, do not send the ones that cost money and not, not too much. I think it was like 15 bucks a pop, but don't send them out if they don't demand an original, send a copy. No joke. I had a manila folder full of like healthcare proxy, power of attorney, all the pre-death and post-death death certificates that I carried around for years. So tell us about how did that then continue to unfold? Well, so very luckily, I'm very close to my parents, to my father, his husband, and they live just around the corner from her. And that was an amazing stroke of luck, really, to have somebody that is family that was that close. And they were really willing to deal. (laughs) They're really good. So, and, And I think they perceived it as part of their role as parents. Like, what can we spare her? The tough part of going into this house that she had died in and like trying to find the important stuff. Would it have been emotional for you when you talk about being on the plane and trying to hold on to your emotions? How did you experience an estranged mother's death? You know, I don't know. That strong physical experience was limited while I was on the plane. And I wondered like, what would have happened if I'd been in a different setting, you know, because I did clamp it down and, right. and then was just felt more dazed than anything. Mm-hmm. And, and it feels very surreal, whatever the situation, it's a big deal when your mother dies, <laughs> whatever your relationship to them is. I didn't have words for it. I don't know if it was typical or not typical. I did go in her house Mm -hmm. a couple days later. I don't think that people know this, but when say the police remove body, like nobody cleans it up. Like whatever, they remove the body, but anything else that happened, unless it's evidence, they don't touch it. And I think they probably can't. This is your property. 
So you were describing they had to make sure that there wasn't foul play because there was some blood involved. Right. So are we talking right. about the blood is still on the floor or the groceries I assume, are still? I assume I didn't see it. You know, I think, wow. I, and you know, and I, my understanding is that when somebody dies, other fluids come out of their body. Oh yeah. You know? I know fluids that for dogs. Yeah, there's, I, there's like, sometimes there's vomit, sometimes there's yeah. feces. So I don't know. My parents who went in, I think it was not that bad, but still that would have been <clears throat> difficult. And it was certainly weird to go in her house. They'd already done some work by the time I got there. Her house was, I hadn't been in it for a while. And when I was in it, it was brief. And I only sort of went in the one room. I had this experience over time of the house was sort of closing in on you to the point that there yeah. was just one very small path through. And I think part of it is she did have very limited mobility. I think it became easier for her to navigate if there was furniture to the right, to the left. She didn't she have to hold on to it. Right. Yep. Yeah. You haven't really retrofitted it for somebody with mobility issues. So what she had done instead was she had a narrow pathway and she had just a bunch of walkers. There was one that she would fold up and put in her car, but I think she was using them in place of rails. So she would just have to get from one to the next one. And I don't know that she was walking around the house with them. My hunch is that that's quite common, that either yeah. people have the money or don't think they need it. And so they don't really make the accommodations that would be useful. They exactly. just kind of band-aid it together using Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a worthwhile pause. I'm going to back out of the Amazon comment because we're about to buy a ramp off oh, of yeah. Amazon to retrofit our house for our yeah. needs. But to your point, so people don't reinvent the wheel, there are a ridiculous amount of free resources relative to Medicare, Medicaid, whatever your elder situation, hospital beds, walkers, wheelchairs, and, and occupational therapists that do the work of, of assessing the home for these needs. So we had that for my parents only as a function of the fact that I was in charge. I swooped in. I literally owned the house. I was like, I'm taking over. We're solving this thing. Yep. And so I went through that process multiple times. I'm going through it now with my mom through her rest home. And I wish our country had socialized medicine, but for lack of that, these moments never cease to impress me. How much is available to solve for things like that. Yeah. That said, I think the majority of people never know to use it, never think they need it, don't want to think they need it. So even my mom right now, she's like, well, I really like the rolly walker with the four wheels instead of the ones that we're all used to seeing, which is the two wheels in front and the tennis balls in the back. But what I just noticed is my mom doesn't have as much control over the full roller. Just as a species, we're incredibly bad at forecasting. So you buy the walker that feels good today and you forget that it, in a month it might not work for you. you know? right. So now let's go to the next section. In, in, in any given uh, end of life elder care stuff, you've got the potential illness, you've got the potential end of life management, you've got the end of life moment itself, which we've just described in detail. And now... You've got to face, if my memory serves of what I had visibility to, but also what I know happens, you've now got a hoarder's house full of shit you've got to deal with. Mm -hmm. I think at this point, you know, anything of value monetarily, bank accounts, et cetera, will come to you as the only child. So that's relatively simplified, but it means now you have this house that is coming to you. I forget how that all worked. So, so you didn't leave a will, which it turns out, even if you have almost nothing of value, if you want to claim any of that house, you still have to go through all the legal shit. This is perfect. So Jen, thank you for saying that. Cause I had forgot. I, I'm not sure. How do I say this? 
I'm not sure I knew that your mom died without a will. I witnessed the end when you did get the house. So I'll name, we know you're about to face cleaning up a house regardless because you feel your duty and all, and presumably it's coming to you and it has some worth that you can therefore sell. And you, if you choose, you can do some sort of end of life moment, a memorial, et cetera. So all these things are facing you, but thank you so much for mentioning that she died without a will because I was just trying to assist somebody and understanding what that process is going to be like for them because just a week ago, they found themselves in that position and, and almost the exact same scenario, estranged from a parent who died without a will and they are the sole child. Yeah. So could you describe what so happened? So I think she didn't have a will partially because she didn't think she had anything of value and partially because she thought, oh, I only have my daughter. It'll just go to her. But it turns right. out that's not true. <laughs> it doesn't exactly. just go to you. You have to go through the probate process. And so I had to uh, hire an attorney and a lot of what he did, I don't know, but mm. sort of a whole process. One of the more complicated things with my mother, she was by the end of her life, I would say hoarding. I hadn't put that word to it, but it would be hard not to say that if you saw her home. And I, as a side note, I think a lot of people, as I start talking to friends who'd lost parents more than I expected, were like, oh yeah, we went into my dad's house after he died and he was hoarding. I, I didn't realize how common it was. And I started mm. to get this idea based on looking my mom's home and talking to people that for a lot of older people, the degree of hoarding comes into their life because they lose mobility. We all have those, like I have drawers and closets and basements full of stuff. And I'm like, oh, I have to clean that out. And then it becomes not possible. You can't right. clean it out. And I you think that can't go in the other room and get the scissors. So you just get another pair for where you're sitting, you know? <laughs> you get another walker from Amazon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I actually deeply appreciate you. This is the Jenny where you're like, actually, I want to call you out on that. But because language matters, we all walk around being like, I'm so OCD, I'm so ADD. So I use the hoarding word cavalierly in part because of how you emailed me and described the house. But my parents had exactly the situation you just described. And I wouldn't necessarily have called them hoarders, but they had canned food from 30 years ago. They had hundreds of empty boxes just in case they might suddenly magically have the physical ability to go all the way down to the basement, get one of them, pack something in it, bring it to your point. Yeah. It's almost like, yeah, I can't think of a good fable or, or fairy tale, but oh shit, the dog's just peeing. Sorry. <laughs> you still going? Let's see. Follow my monthly podcast for free on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your irreverent radio. In between, you can find support, education, and hundreds of resources on my website, thisisgettingold.com. Just add some dashes. Sign up for my newsletter to receive my latest insights, anecdotes, audio, and ever-growing list of shit. Performing my theme music is my mom and my son. My audio producer is Michelle Radio with Flying Pig Audio. And I am Irreverent Rachel with your reminder to tune in next month for part two of this podcast and leaving you with outtakes that will validate all my dog ambivalent audience members. Now, go embrace your own irreverence. Yay, I got it. It's going to be a good one for the outtakes. That's what happens when a puppy cries wolf all the time. Ignore him. Oh, yeah. We recently invested in a washable rug for just this reason. Even though she's not a puppy, occasionally she refuses to go outside. We actually bought her this ridiculous raincoat thinking maybe we could get her to go out. But then, of course, she hated the raincoat more than she hates the rain. It, just, it really backfired. Bye.